Hello. Before we get down to cinema, I would like to draw your attention to our Patreon. Regular listeners will know that these podcasts are supported by Quad, our home cinema in Derby, UK. But as Quad is a charity, we want to make Cinelet as self-sustainable as possible. So, to that end, we have set up a two-tier way in which you can support Cinelit. For our 35mm Cine fans, you'll get a bonus additional episode each month where we will be deep diving into an area of cinema that will be exclusive to Patreon subscribers for at least six months before it arrives like a late dinner guest on the regular feed. Plus, you get the episodes a week in advance of the main feed release. But if you want to support us and don't feel that pressing need to have the additional podcast each month, but still want that warm, satisfying feeling of being part of the Cinelit success story, then you can become an 8mm Cine fan where you can donate and get our heartfelt thanks. Head over to the Patreon page and subscribe if you can. However, we know that times are hard at the moment, so please do not feel you need to subscribe if you are not able. We'll still be putting out new, free-to-listen-to episodes on a regular basis throughout the year. Now let's get back to your regular scheduled broadcast. Welcome to Cinelit. Today we are giving a delicate high five to one of horror cinema's most infamous right hands. Yes, sharpen those finger blades and get ready for Freddy as we talk Nightmare on Elm Street. My name is Adam Marsh and I am joined by Cinelit's resident expert, Daryl Buxton. How are you, Daryl? Yeah, I'm ready for Freddy, Adam. Uh, you know, I've, I've, I've taken the no-dos and stocked up on caffeine and uh, yeah, um, he, he ain't going to break into this one. You know, we're uh, we're a Freddy safe zone, I think, for the next hour or so. We'll, we'll yeah. see, we'll see. There are some podcasts you can do in your sleep, just not this one. Uh, we are today joined by uh, Daryl's partner in crime in Quad's monthly horror night, Fright Club, Adam Crowther. How are you, Adam? Oh, I'm good. I'm also definitely uh, ready for Freddy. <laughs> <laughs> Knives at the ready. Very good, very good. So the, I guess the reason we, we, we decided to do this podcast is because you guys are putting on Nightmare Elm Street Part 3 Dream Warriors uh, this month in February uh, 2020 as part of your Horror Night at Squad. What was the decision to, to, to jump into Part 3? What was it? We, we, we haven't done Part 3 quite before, I guess. And it felt like it's, it's the, last, the last big one. I guess, which I'm sure we'll get in the rank in these films at some point today. We've shown a couple of uh, shown a couple of Wes Craven's Scream films as well recently, so we're we're sort of Craven friendly on uh, on Fright Club, and uh, Part Three is a good one in in the franchise, and um, we we love our sequels at Fright Club. You know, uh, Jason Lives is is one of our all time favourites. So we thought if we've given Jason the sequel treatment, we've got to give the same to Freddy. I think. I think. I- my OCD always went going goes crazy, but when I was when I was programming more heavily involved with Fright Club, uh, my OCD was like, "Well, we can't show part three because we haven't shown parts one and two. <laughs> yeah, we, 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 they, we really would kick into that. Even to the point when we did that, when, when we did Frank, uh, Jason, we did parts one and part six as a double bill. I ended up going back and filling in the <laughs> backfilling and showing two and showing three and showing four at some point. So I know I, I, yeah, we, we'll have yeah. done all six of them. Although, do you remember we showed part two and part eight on a double bill, and then me and you, yeah. me and you, sort of did a twenty-minute thing 
describing all the murders in in parts three through seven. So I think that was in. I think we did that during when we did double bill of one and six. Oh, was that right? Yeah, and we, we did were, two, yeah. three, four, and five. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We might have done yeah. a quiz between parts two and eight. I don't. Yes, remember. we I, I we, made, we, I made we did. Great paper mache head, which did not turn out quite as I anticipated. Yeah, I've still got photos of that, but uh, yeah, it wasn't my most artistic moment. But on on this Nightmare on Elm Street podcast, we're we're talking a lot about Jason Voorhees oh, yeah. at the moment. Are we, well, we, we we will we will get on to Jason, but. Well, that's that's kind of the, the kind of the 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 thing about eighties horror cinema is that they they kind of cross over very um, astutely. Obviously, Jason and Freddy would eventually cross over and cross paths, but um, you you almost can't talk about one without talking about another. And Friday the Thirteenth being a, a key part of that slasher boom, Jason was a key part of that. But then Freddy came along and did something a bit different I think within that slasher genre I mean to the point where people I, I'm not sure people do people think about the Freddy films as um, slashers I, th- I think they did I, I think they did but it did also seem a genuine step forward it felt like a bit of a development because uh, I mean the slasher movie by sort of 1984 when Nightmare on Elm Street came out was a bit sort of redundant it was retreading uh, the same old ground and it needed something like this to try and sort of kickstart it. Not that that really did kickstart slashers in general, but it, it, it um, at least it offered something new because what we got here was the addition of fantasy to the uh, slasher template, which had been done a few times in slasher movies as a, a sort of surprise ending or something, you know, but had never really been done as as part of the fabric of, of, of the movie. And suddenly here was this idea that um, we've got a, a great classic slasher-type killer, but he's not in the real world. And, um, I mean, this this was a concept Craven had come up with some years ago. I think it dates back to the late 70s. And there were magazine articles and newspaper articles starting to appear about, oh, Wes Craven's doing this new movie um, as early as about 1981 or 82. So it took years and years and years. It went through all the major studios who all turned it down. Everybody had looked at this and said, oh, no, we're, we're, we can't see how this is going to work. We, we, you know, uh, um, it seems a bit of a strange concept. And eventually Craven did get it made. It was like a, a dream project for him, you know, no pun intended. And um, finally got it made and proved all the major studios wrong. And uh, as, as as quite often happened, you know, there've been many, many cases of films that turn into classics and films that turn into great franchises that everybody said no to. It's the sort of movie equivalent of, of turning down the Beatles. Yeah, I mean, it's it has, you can see why it was turned down looking at him, yeah, watching yeah. the first film. You can see why, because it was just like, well, hang on a minute, it's not set in a holiday camp. Mm. What's going on? It's a slash movie, it's not set in a holiday camp. Yeah. There's something wrong here. But, it, it, you know, joking aside, it was like, it, it, it had elements to it and the construction of it that were more in, dare I say, an art house camp than in a straight um, slasher horror film. I think that's very true. When uh, Nightmare 4 came out... In 1987, Alejandro Jodorowsky was uh, in in the middle of promoting uh, Santa Sangre, which was which was due out around the same time. And um, there were interviews where Jodorowsky was talking about Nightmare on Elm Street Part Four as a, a classic of surrealism, and saying it was it was his favourite film of the year. 
and um, and and you know, he he may have been having a little bit of a joke and and having uh, you know um, sort of having a dig at art house cinema in doing that, but it, it does sort of reinforce what you're saying there, Adam. You know, I, th- I think serious filmmakers do look at some of the nightmare films and certainly some of the imagery within them and say, yeah, this this has got sort of Fellini esque, Jodorowsky esque sort of elements to it. Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure about Godorowski's, um uh, analysis of Part Four, but we'll get we'll get to that later. <laughs> so yeah, so my my, my thoughts on, um, on on the first Nightmare on Elm Street film, I remember I watched it repeatedly over over the years, but it wasn't until I saw it in the cinema, maybe when we did it as Bed and Breakfast about seven or eight years ago, something like that, and I watched it. I remember thinking, this is edited like a dream. You know, it's not it's not it's not a straightforward film where you have dream sequences and real life sequences. The real life sequences are edited like a dream in the same way as the, the dream sequences are. And it really stood out. It's like yeah, I had that thing where it was like and it, it was in, in a fairly innocuous scene. But the way that dreams work, you don't go to a place. You know, you, if you if you're in a place and you think, well, we're going to you, you're there. You suddenly yeah. go to that place and you are there. And that's the way that Nightmare on Elm Street's editing works. It's a scene where they, where they go into the school. They have a big conversation outside, outside the school. And they go into the school and then it's a hard cut back to their bedroom later on that night. Yeah. And it's just like, well, that's not how editing works. You're not supposed to do that. You're supposed to go into the school and edit them in the school and then, and then out. So it was like editing in that sort of like choppy kind of manner that, um, that you get with, with dream sequences, you know, yeah. real life dreams, you know. What what's amazing is how audiences, and especially a horror audience who who weren't perceived at that time as as being you know particularly sort of intelligent or semi literate, even though even though they were you know, but audiences accepted that and bought it mm. and understood it and knew what it was and didn't sort of go rushing to the the box office to ask for their money back or go out and complain that, oh, there, there seems to be a scene missing here. You know, they just bought it, absolutely. And, and they, they, they knew the, this, the, the, the grammar of the film. You see, maybe it's, my, maybe it's my snobbishness with this, but I think with Wes Craven, he obviously built up a bit of a reputation from The Hills of Eyes and Last House on the Left. Yeah. He already built that reputation to some extent. So when you see scenes like that, you go, okay, he's, he means to do that. It's a deliberate decision. Yes. Whereas when Renny Harlan does it in number four, it's a mistake and it's a bad editing job. <laughs> uh, just, 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 just throw my snobbishness in there with it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You're, you're not a fan of number four, are you? I'm, I'm no, looking no. forward to looking forward to getting on to talking about that. I'm, I'm with Alejandro on on part four, but. Uh, um, but uh, yeah, I mean the, the the first nightmare. Maybe it it connected with audiences and connected with other filmmakers, perhaps because dream dreams obviously had been around for for millennia, you know, and movies had been around for less than a hundred years at that point, and so maybe the public at large and maybe the film community at large and maybe the horror film community at large took all this on board because. Even though it was new to cinema, it it wasn't new in the consciousness, you know. And and it, it was here was someone tapping into it in in the way that you know dare dare we again say that that people like Fellini may have may have done before. You know, filmmakers had done this. Hitchcock had done it. You know, they they'd ha- they they'd had dream sequences in their films, but not necessarily cut like a movie. 
Um, and, and here's Craven bringing that into the slasher film and making it work and, and really, really sort of making it what the film's about, you know, rather than having isolated dream sequences. Anything could be a dream here. We don't know what we're looking at in Nightmare on Elm Street. And we soon learn that from the very start of the film. We, we learn that uh, within, within a few minutes... We're lost. We don't know where we are, but we're loving it. We're, we're enjoying the ride. And we like the fact that we don't know if the characters are in a dream or not. It's an interesting, I mean, it's an interesting uh, time period, I think, when this was released. I think it, it kind of tapped in, like you say, it tapped into to what audiences wanted at that time, even if they didn't know they wanted that. Yeah, uh, I think yeah. they. It was all. It was in some ways. It was ahead of the game. It was definitely at the at the the dying embers of the of the slasher boom of the late seventies, early eighties. It was right at the end of that. But it, in in many ways, it was not part of that. It, it had elements of like eightiesness about it, which the wise cracking villain became much more of an eighties thing. Than, the, than than say Michael Myers or Jason, which are the silent killers. Freddy was much more of an eighties villain. He was the he was the on TV welcome to prime time. It was the whole the quipping, the whole thing that was that it was his deal. Yeah, felt yeah. much better fit for eight for the nineteen eighties than the others did. Oh yeah, what we'd had before in 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 the big hitters, your Michael Myers and your your Jasons were. were silent killers you know they were mass killers we, we we couldn't see their face we couldn't hear them talk they just lumbered around effectively and and you know we we love what they do but here's freddie and you can see his face you can see his expressions you know burnt burnt off though it is you know we we can see his eyes and we can see his mouth we can see when he laughs and when he scowls and um as you say he's he's got the patter yeah, absolutely. The banter was became the thing that he was most known for. Not as not as prevalent in the first film, I think. No, I I I, li- I like it in the first movie because you, you you start getting the wisecracks in in the sequels. But the first movie, when he speaks, he's he's terrifying. I mean, right right from the word go, you know, he's he's menacing uh, Amanda Wiss down that uh, sort of dream alleyway, and um, there's there's the classic dialogue exchange where she she sort of whimpers, "Please God," and he sort of points to his claw and says, "This is God." And I, 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 I was rocked when I saw that. You know, I, I thought that's proper scary dialogue. And I think, I think it was. Although I'm, I'm, I'm not a religious person myself. Even, even I was shocked by, by the blasphemy of it. You know, I, I thought, can, can you say that in a film? Can you say that in a commercial film? You know, and uh, um, can, can you have a character like this doing it? And of course, then, then this is before we get onto the whole controversy of what Freddy's character actually is. You know, which, which again, when, when as that's revealed through the course of the film, you think, can, can they do this? Can you have this sort of figure in a movie? And again, I'm sure we'll we'll go on to develop that as we talk about the sequels. Well, they, they describe him as a child killer, don't they, in these films? Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, and um, as, yeah. you know, that's that's the that's the upside. Yeah. Exactly, exactly, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think yeah. you know we'll, we, we can do that. Yeah. yeah. We'll talk about the we'll talk about the uh, the remake. I'm assuming at the end of this, but um, one of the things they went wrong in that is is being much more explicit on how much of a bad guy 
uh, Freddie was by, by explicitly calling him a paedophile and calling yeah. him a child killer and a paedophile, which, which I don't know whether audiences want that. I mean, the, the, I think the 80s audiences, being a child killer was awful, but it was kind of like detached. You didn't see him killing children. You could enjoy yeah. Freddie. I suppose it, it was it was like a movie. It was something you'd seen in movies before. You know, yeah. it was it, it was it was a movie trope rather than something from the real world, and that sort of fitted the world of this film. I mean, um, um, amazingly, of course, quite astonishingly, A Nightmare on Elm Street is based on a true story. Yeah, is it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, uh, there were a load of articles in the Los Angeles Times, uh, I think of late 70s, early 80s, and Wes Craven took that newspaper and, read, and was fascinated by all these news articles. There was a thing called Asian Death Syndrome, and uh, refugees in, in California who were specifically from uh, Cambodia, Vietnam and Laos, guys aged between their sort of late teens and their mid-50s, we're all reporting. We're having we're having terrible nightmares. We don't want to go to sleep. Is there any way that we can stay awake? And then some of them started dying. And Wes Craven read this in the paper and thought, "This is fascinating. Why is this happening to this little knot of of, of refugees that has come over to the, the the US? Why are they all reporting the same thing? Why do none of them want to sleep?" What are they doing to stay awake? Why are some of them dying off? And then to, to add to the sort of realism of it, um, uh, Craven decided, right, what I'll do, I'll take that idea, I'll make it a bunch of teenagers because that's more cinema-friendly than a bunch of uh, 50-year-old guys from Vietnam. And I'm going to call my villain Kruger because... That was the name of the kid who bullied me at school. And Craven had already nicked his name for, for Krug, the villain of yeah. Last House on the Left, played by David Hess. Mm -hmm. And so here was here was Kruger back again. And yeah, he's he's apparently the name of the school bully at West Craven's school. So uh, um, so yeah, there's these two, there's these two elements of, of actual fact that are, did they think did they ever figure out what was going on with the um, immigrants and their death dreams that were I've, I've not heard that I, I don't know if that ever got reported which which is terrifying <laughs> so we, we've been talking obviously we've been chatting over the origins of Nightmare on Elm Street was was this a franchise that you were a fan of as a kid growing up was this, this yeah absolutely actually I, I I always joke my favorite films at eight or nine year old were Grease, Calamity Jane and A Nightmare on Elm Street yeah, I like the thing. I've always had eclectic tastes, but yeah, it's 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 one of those, um, I'd heard about for a really long time. I'd you'd see these. You don't do them so much anymore. But Channel Four used to have those big countdowns of like top hundred scariest mm. films, scariest moments, all this. And I'd heard about it through things like that, or through kind of friends, parents, and it was a market stall in Darlington Market, um, and they they had the tape, and I was with my grandparents. I used to, I grew up with them a lot. Um, and they were very relaxed. I used to watch all sorts of stuff, and I was like, "Oh, can I get this?" And I, and I got it. And I remember the night. I, it was a Saturday, and I was staying overnight, and I wasn't allowed to use the TV until the next day. Um, so I just I was remember looking at this tape and the anxiety that I put in my head, just looking at it was looking at this front cover and the back with like the girl with like the the, the sheet over and everything, and 
it terrified me and I was like, I'm going to take it back. I don't want to watch this. I don't want to watch this anymore. And then I saw it the next day and I, I loved it and it wasn't as bad as I'd anticipated. And I've never been able to recreate that that anxiety. It's, it's really strange. But yeah, then I loved it and I started tracking them down. I got part two on tape. Um, so, you watch, so you watched them in order? I mean, it's funny. No, 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 no. I, I saw the first one and I saw the second one. And I think I saw the seventh because that was on TV. Okay. And then I t- it was a bit of a gap after that. And then I saw Freddy versus Jason, because Freddy versus Jason was the first one that was new for when I was like conscious of them. Mm-hmm. But I wasn't old enough, but a friend of mine had it on a pirate. So we watched it there. And then I think after that, I just went back and then I watched everything in order from that point onwards. It's so funny because it I, I think the first one I watched was four, um, because it came at what, 18, 88? 88, 88. Yeah, 88, 89. And um, so I, I saw that when I was like 11, 12, something like that on video, but I hadn't seen the others before. So, yeah, so I, I watched them in a weird order. I think most people, I don't think I've met anyone who's watched these. Um, Daryl may have, but yeah. I'm, I've never seen, I've never known anyone who actually has watched them. Well, you don't necessarily need to. No, I think when you, I think when you when you are underage watching these movies and you're well, watching yeah. them, I think you yeah, watch them in any order you can bloody well get, yeah. don't you? So um, I, I, I do remember that the, the, one of the big things for me was I, I I'd seen four, but then I bought the novelizations of one through six, one through five that were published, and I remember reading those. And all these films used to have novelizations. They did, yeah. I mean, that, that was that was my big way of uh, of reliving those movies for for a good couple of years before I had enough money and was old enough to to properly invest in the, in the whole franchise. But those those novelizations were uh, were great. So Daryl, I'm assuming you watched them upon release in order. Yeah, I did. I was anxiously waiting for the first one for about three years, as I say, and because uh, you'd been reading about it in newspapers and magazines saying Wes Craven's got this, this idea about this dream killer that he wants to put on film. So I, I was sort of aware of that. And I saw the first one in on a trip to London. I saw it at cinema in Leicester Square in early 1985, I think, which is when it got released in the UK. And with, within months, within months, I, I think possibly even before the end of that year, um, we, we got to part two in cinemas. And um, these were big because even the Friday movies didn't all get cinema release. And uh, the Nightmare films did. Um, so I, I saw all of them on original cinema release. And they, as as in the in the classic tradition of a good solid horror franchise and a great slasher franchise they were banging them out one a year so yeah every every 12 months you you, you'd have your your date with freddie again you know but for me it was a cinema thing but um, these films were perfect for video you know and they were big on video just at the point where video stores were starting to maybe sort of run out of decent horror titles to 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 show and we were starting to get the 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 backlash of things like the video nasty campaign and so filmmakers were toning their movies down a little bit and suddenly in the middle of all that we we've got this blaspheming child killing razor fingered scarface killer with bad fashion sense who's in your face you know and and the uh, for for several years, Freddie was sort of carrying the horror torch, you know, where everybody else had sort of dropped it. 
Yeah, I mean, it, it, like I said before, it's almost perfectly designed for a particular uh, brand of 1980s um, uh, fertile soil, wasn't it? I mean, like, oh, yeah, yeah. the sex and violence of the early slasher movies is not as prevalent in Freddy, but the blasphemy and, and the cool, wisecracking killer is is much more prevalent, which I guess helped for censorship as, as those films went on. I know Jason suffered from censorship issues yeah. in, in, in that franchise, but Freddy seemed a bit more less reliant on that kind of uh, shock. What Craven does in the first film, he approaches it not as a horror movie, he, he approaches it as a, a, a big Hollywood movie. He casts stars in it. You know, it's got John Saxon, Ronnie, Ronnie Blakely from Nashville's yeah. one of the one of the, 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 the main leads in it. You know, Robert England, who was a sort of well, well-known, well-established character actor. I'd seen Robert England in uh, Bob Raffleson's uh, Stay Hungry. And and then in Toby Hooper's um, Eaten Alive or Death Trap, where he he steals the film with the very first line, which which we won't repeat to a, our family listening audience, you know. And then England had done V in 1983 on TV, which everybody watched. Which is a, almost a light for light character for Freddie, isn't it? Almost, almost identical transferring from TV to to film. There. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> you exactly, couldn't get two yeah. more different characters no, from I mean, England to play. Does that show England's range, though? You know, yeah. and, uh, and and England obviously got typecast by Freddie, but doesn't seem to have minded. Seems to have embraced horror and seems to have embraced this character when a lot of actors would have complained about it saying look i'm 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 an actor you know i've i i've got range i've i've played this this um this friendly alien character in this tv show i've i've worked with bob raffleson you know what are you doing saddling me in this in this hideous creation but england absolutely took it up and ran with it and and is is i i, I think he's delighted that freddie came into his life do you think it's one of the reasons why it's almost it's almost unthinkable to think about anybody else playing that role, both going forward. I mean, Jackie um, Earl Haley didn't get much backlash against it, but there wasn't the love for his performance in the remake. And, and he's not repeated it, you know, even yeah, exactly. though he was he was signed to, apparently. I think, I think he'd signed up for two movies. And uh, when he was cast... I thought if if any if 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 they've got to have somebody other than Robert England playing this part, they they picked the guy. They've got the right guy here, and uh, and he's he turned out to be okay, but no great shakes, you know, which was a shame. And and the film sort of died really. But uh, what what a difficult act England is to follow, and and how that showed in the Nightmare remake. Yeah, I mean the first film is built around around his performance but like you say it's got it's got a great cast that support uh, England's central performance as, as Freddie we've got Johnny Depp in there as well even yeah you know. yeah introducing Johnny Depp isn't yeah, it yeah yeah um in a very early role but yeah i mean it's 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 a team movie though e- equally as well you know you have the team characters doing the bulk of the of the drama and the hysterics and they're a good bunch in this one yeah, yeah. There's there's no amateurs there, are there? Again, no. Craven, Craven's casting is superb. You know, as we say, he, he he sort of discovers Johnny Depp for the movie, you know. And uh, Heather Langenkamp is 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 not a, a sort of conventional slasher glamour girl, is she? She's she's yeah. got something about her. Well, she looks like a teenager. I think that, that's what it is. She looks like the character she's supposed to be playing, which exactly. really adds to the to the story. 
Yeah, yeah. And, and the film plays a lot more on her intelligence and her nous and her courage and her ability to do stuff than it does... Uh, you know, it's, it's more about that than it is about her running away screaming, you know, yeah. and looking nice and, and, and looking to date the college jock. You know, it's not about that. No, and, and this movie has a handful of really iconic scenes, visual iconic scenes. Yeah. yeah. Um, obviously, there's the um, pool of blood spraying onto the ceiling for Amanda Weiss's death, um, Tina's death. You've got the girl, Adam, Adam, Adam mentioned earlier on, the girl in the uh, the plastic sheet over her head, you know. In the hospital scene. In the hospital yeah. scene, yeah. You've got all you've got these iconic moments all the way through. You've got Freddie, the less successful, maybe the Freddie with the extended arms, touching both sides of the, uh, of the alleyway. You've got um, uh, Johnny Depp's waterbed death. Uh, which oh, that's, is like, that, that, that's the kill of the entire franchise, I think. The one everyone remembers. Yeah, absolutely. And um, you've got the bath scene as well with a glove in the bath. Yeah, yeah. 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 Which, which you know, got got repeat. That was one that got ripped off and repeated in a lot of other movies. They all put their own little spin on that. You know, who who needs a shower scene when you can have a bath scene? And, well, that's it. Yeah, I mean, it was, but it almost felt like what Craven was doing a little bit of that. You yeah, know, with yeah. the sort of like the way that he constructed some of those sequences yes you've seen them before but we're gonna have a bath scene not gonna have a shower scene we're gonna have these different elements that are the same but different the image that i thought i think has really caught on to the point where you actually saw um a version of it in spencer last year is um the heroine running up the stairs and her feet getting trapped in the stairs in this case in Mm. the stairs turn into this sort of gooey mess and and she can't she can't sort of clamber up them because she's stuck in them. And yeah, even even as late as uh, Spencer last November, you know, we we've got a scene with Princess Diana in 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 a horror situation. You know that 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 movie is has has got a lot of horror stuff going on in it. And um, there's a scene where she's running upstairs, and and they do the sort of realist version of that, where the the stairs are so sort of old and and damaged and broken that her feet sort of go through and and she gets stuck in there but yeah that's pure nightmare on elm street that comes directly from the first nightmare on elm street movie and it's such a powerful image isn't it true wes craven didn't actually want that scene in it was um bob shea who convinced him to include it oh i i, I didn't oh, so, know that. so i read that it was a yeah. Uh, yeah he got he got overruled which, which surprises me, given that Craven loves his staircase scenes. They're all over. I, I, I could be wrong, but I saw an interview yeah, that yeah. Um, yeah, Bob overruled. Was possible? That, he really didn't want it. I, I, I think he did in several aspects of, of the production and, and carried on doing so in, in the sequels uh, with, with other directors. But uh, I'm sure you're right on that. Uh, what, whatever the truth is, I think I think Wes adopted that staircase imagery, and you you see it in a lot of his later films. Usually, it's with characters being chased up a staircase, and we, it's filmed from the bottom, which appears in the Scream films, and it's in things like My Soul to Take. And his characters often get up to the top of the stairs, and then find they've got an advantage because they they can sort of attack the killer as they're, they're sort of approaching them. But uh, here, here in the Nightmare films, it's something different. The, the, the stairs become the monster. I, I think it's a brilliant image, so potent. And uh, and taking something that's every day and making it really something you do every day at home. You go up the stairs 10 times a day at home and um, suddenly here it is on screen and it's terrifying. 
So we've we've got Wes Craven creating the idea of uh, of, a, of a dream killer in the late seventies, spending a few years developing, writing the screenplay, shopping it around Hollywood, being turned down repeatedly, finally getting new lines to come on board. It makes the movie, releases the movie. It's a massive hit. Five six years of his life, and then they crank out another sequel in about eight months. Yeah, it comes comes out within a year. Yeah, yeah, and Wes isn't involved, doesn't want to be involved. He's told his story. He's finished with it. Even the, even though you get the the ending with the sort of dummy Ronnie Blakely being sort of hauled through the door, you know, and there's a suggestion that it's not all over, it's not finished, you know. For Wes Craven, it was. Well, I think, yeah, I think for Wes Craven, it was just more of an idea of like, well, every scene's a dream sequence. You don't yeah, know yeah, when yeah. what's real and what's not. It was less about keeping it open for Let's a sequel. Part two, yeah, yeah, it was yeah. more about, well, it, it, it's, it's all been a dream. It, you know, that was the idea. But obviously, Bob Shea had other plans. So we get Freddy's Revenge. We do get Freddy's Revenge. Now, this is the, one of the ones, movies that I... I've got a fondness for mainly because the the poster for this film was exceptional. It was a right right on the money for VHS rentals. It was the one that pops off the shelf. You had the iconic image of the school bus. You had all that kind of like cliffs and stuff that wasn't really part of the Freddy franchise, yeah, but became part of the franchise because of that poster. Yeah, yeah. And this is this is uh, Graham hum- Graham Humphreys' design, the British yeah. artist. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, who's who's still working today and doing he amazing is, yeah. uh, Blu-ray covers and posters today. Um, but yeah, he 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 just started. Um, he'd got his big big start with them. Um, he he'd done the cover of the Cramps LP off the bone, which was in three D, and uh, and then he'd done the poster for uh, Evil Dead around about the same time. Um, and has never looked back. And, yeah, uh, no. But yeah, his his art for the Nightmare film part two is is sensational. And as you say, it really sells all of the elements from the sequel, which then become a part of Nightmare Lore. Yeah, Nightmare on Street 2 is an interesting one because it, it's gone through a, a major rehabilitation period <laughs> over its years. And when it, when it came out, it was it was it was terrible. And Wes Craven had to return for part three to save the franchise. Is that that was the story? Especially when I was when I was growing up, that was the story that was being told about it. It was like two was a misstep. Wes came back, righted the ship. And it all was well from there on, which, which is how we saw it. Yeah. Which is how it's that, and that, but, but obviously it got it has been rehabilitated now, and people looked at it and said, "Well, actually, you know, there's there's a lot more going on in number two as a comment on the slasher movie franchise, yeah, particularly yeah. having a final boy character rather than a final yeah, girl yeah. character." Well, of, of course, what's going on in a big way is is the um, you can't even call it subtext. You know, no, it's yeah. it's a it's a gay movie. Yeah, text, text. Yeah, it's yeah, uh, yeah, it's, yeah. yeah. and and um, Mark Patton, who plays uh, the lead character Jesse, has has been called and and he has even adopted the name himself. You know, he's he's been called the first male screen queen. Yeah, okay. and and that's that's <laughs> very true. So so yeah, the film the film has been adopted by a gay audience and and um, and is 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 now looked at largely for those elements for for the sort of homoerotic element of it 
um, for the very positive sort of uh, elements that are, that are shown throughout the film. And uh, there's even there was a documentary a couple of years ago called Scream, Qu- Scream, Comma, Queen, Exclamation Mark, My Nightmare on Elm Street, which which was all about Mark Patton's life since since making the film. And, and and what being in that film has meant to him over the years and how the change in the attitude of fans over the years has sort of affected him and, and made his experience more positive. So uh, an extraordinary film, really. And it, it did just seem terrible when, when, when it first appeared. Um, and I, I think the fact that it was cranked out so quickly, like Friday Part 2, which, which was, that came out within 11 months of Friday the 13th, you know, and... It's, it's like when you see a film's budget reported and, and if, if you see something's been made for 50 million, you think, oh, this, this could be good. You know, you see it's been made for 50,000 and you sort of go in with very, very low expectations, which sometimes a film overturns. And it's the same with, with time span. If, if a sequel comes out within a year of the original, you do sort of go in thinking this is going to be terrible. Mm-hmm. They're doing this. They're doing this for the money, and no one is going to have put any effort into this. And and so, the film sort of carried that baggage with it. And I think there was more to it than that. I mean, Jack Shoulder was the director yeah. who just he'd just come off a really really clever and and, and witty horror movie uh, called Alone in the Dark, which, like Nightmare on Elm Street had reasonable stars in it. You know, it had Martin Landau and it had uh, Donald Pleasance in it and uh, it wasn't a teen movie. So so he was a good fit for this and he went on to do things like The Hidden later on. Um, he's, he's a good horror director. He, he often does sort of interesting things with his horror films that aren't the norm. And as we say, you've got this whole... We're not even going to call it subtext, you know. It's it's yeah. it's right up there in the open, you know. There is a shower scene in this one, and um, uh, and and yeah, it's it's a homoerotic shower scene, it's, which, I mean, which, which ends in a kill, you know. So it is. Remember, I, I guess I guess because it was so dismissed, the sort of like the idea that 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 people didn't notice that it was a a, a, a gay horror film at the time. Was, was probably because it was so dismissed as not being very good. And in some ways, that's true. In some ways, it, it, it just feel like a bit of a rerun of the first one, um, but with with, with with a male um, screen queen character rather than uh, Dante's character in the first film. But it had elements, you know, it was it kind of built on the law and it had a couple of things that became part of the Nightmare on Elm Street thing. It wasn't just a dismiss and we moved on and, and Wes righted the ship, but I think it was definitely more of Freddy coming into his own in this movie that then Wes took in the third film and really ramped up. You're all my children now, you know, that kind of stuff. It has some interesting elements that they've not gone back to, Freddy coming into the real world. Yeah, yeah. In this which, movie. Which, which, which then... Um... They bring Freddy into the real world here and it doesn't quite work and it doesn't really make sense and it's not a good fit. And then later sequels and particularly Wes Craven's New Nightmare sort of contradict that scene anyway, you know, and I think it's it's a good individual scene, but I think people watch it as an individual scene rather than 
uh, you know, if, if you try and fit it into the the, the, the narrative of, of that movie and the narrative of the series, it doesn't really make any sense. You know, even even in a film that isn't supposed to make much sense, or it doesn't no. matter whether it makes sense. Here, here they seem to be almost challenging that and saying, "Well, let's do this scene that that doesn't even fit into the dream logic." You know. And yeah, and, uh, yeah it, it, it doesn't work, but it's a fun watch for a couple of minutes, you know. Well, it's, it's a good one to cut into the trailer, isn't it? You know, Freddie, oh, yeah. Yeah. Freddie at a party, you know, swiping left and right, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, I think the one the one element, I guess, in this film that has not been repeated is the possession elements of this movie where it's Freddie taking over the body of Jesse. Yeah, I, I, I like that as a variant. I like mm. that for a sort of one-off movie, you know, because that's the good thing about slasher franchises is, is you can either have your killer as the same sort of lumbering figure stomping through the woods for, for 20 films, or you can take the opportunity with each individual film to have them attempt something different. And then when it doesn't work out, they do something else in the next film and the next film. And I I, I quite like the idea that, Fred, for me, this is Freddie having a go at possession and seeing if it works, you know. And and uh, and it's, it's I, I, I love that aspect of this. It gives it enough distance from the first movie to, to justify a part two existing. And um, England seems to to enjoy himself doing it, you know. And uh, as a Mark Patton seems to 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 enjoy those scenes too. I, I I think they work well together. It's it's a positive for me. That is, I, I like it. Yeah, Patton was an interesting choice. I mean, he, he, he's worked out quite well. But other auditions were Brad Pitt was auditioned for this. Yeah, yeah Christian really. Slater audi- auditioned for this. So it, show, it shows that nightmares a big deal among, amongst the sort of burgeoning community, the, ne- the, the new wave that's, that's going to burst out in the 90s, you know. Nightmares a big thing for them, you know, and uh, getting, getting the part in Nightmare on Elm Street probably didn't mean all that much to, to, to young actors. Getting in Nightmare 2 meant everything, you know. Suddenly it, it was a named franchise. It was a, it was a big deal. I don't think I've got anything kind of out of the ordinary to add to this. Uh, I just want to emphasise what Adam said at the beginning about the cover art, and that was the most striking thing for me. And again, like the box art for the first one, it, it terrified me long before I'd actually seen the film. Uh, and then again, upon watching it, it wasn't as bad as I thought. But yeah, it's it, it's got some really great sequences, not as many memorable ones as the first, but I still think across the franchise as a whole, there are certain moments that pop from Freddy 2 more than the others, like the shower sequence and the pool party. And it's it's definitely when they made Freddy a bit more dimensional and they gave him a bit more meat. Obviously, he's, he's talked about a lot in the original and you get you get this context discussed by other characters, but this is the first time he really presents himself and he feels like an actual living villain. Yeah, I mean, the sequences at the end, uh, I think, uh, really allow him to shine. I think with the, with the sort of like the, the three way between Jesse and Lisa's character, and then and then also like um, uh, and Freddie over possession of Jesse. Uh, I thought all that sequence really gave England something to really get his teeth into in that sequence. Um, shame it was it was very late in the day in the whole film, but. It gave him something to go on, which then obviously we kick on later on. It's it's the real springboard for the rest of it, where he becomes the character. Because I think he, he's the villain in the first one. Obviously, he is the monster, but he's not really he's not the lead. Whereas afterwards, 
people came to see them for Freddy. Yeah, yeah. Or yeah. some of the rest of the characters. Well, okay, so so it, while, whilst this was a massive hit, um, you know, grossing $30 million off a $3 million budget, you know, it was, just like, it was still a massive, massive success. It was considered to be a misstep and we need to do something in the next one. Yeah, I think crit- critically, profession- in, in terms of professional critics, mm. they, they were always going to slate something like this anyway. But I think audiences sort of turned against it a little bit as well. You know, there, there were people that had invested in Nightmare on Elm Street and wanted this to become a, a hit series. And then we all went to see part two and thought, well, that's killed it, you know. Yeah. What was the audience reaction like? Because obviously, Daryl, you said you saw all of these in cinemas and yeah. it's very easy for us to talk about this retrospectively about this was a reaction and everyone's changed their minds, blah, blah, blah. But how was the general audience reaction just at, yeah. at the time, just as a standalone film? How did people think about this? Well, you've, you've, you've got to bear in mind that my own personal experience was seeing the film with about four other people on a, on a wet Wednesday afternoon, which is, which is what you did in 1985, 86. You know, nobody was going to the cinema. But yeah, you, you did then pick up in the press and in, in the letters pages of uh, horror magazines and things and the, the fanzines that were just starting to come out then, you know. So, so we, there was this sense of a horror community starting to build Again, in the wake of the video nasties thing, you know, we were all sort of banding together as a sort of army. And um, so you were you were talking to people through through the letters pages of fanzines, basically. And it was there that you picked up what what the what the vibe was about films like Freddy 2. Yeah, it, it wasn't a good reaction. Yeah, pe- people were, were disappointed that the sequel had had gone in the way it had and I, th- I think the main the, the the big thing was freddie coming into the real world people didn't like that and reacted strongly against it and said this does this doesn't make any sense you know well but that happens at the end of the first one doesn't it they bring him out of the dream that's the, the how how they finish the first yeah. film you know yeah. they bring yeah. him out so it's not like it's adding something yeah there is precedent yeah, yeah it's precedent people, people people did take against it in the second film in a big big way for some reason as though this this can't happen to our freddy you know mm. a bit odd to say when there's only two films it's not really established at this point it's like half of a whole picture it's different when there's seven of them and you change the rules but yeah. i know but but uh, uh nightmare did hit in that in that kind of way though i think i think it, it, it hit the hit the ground running and people people loved it, and as I say, invested in it, and thought, yeah, this this is something you know we've been watching Friday the Thirteenth and Halloween for years. You know, this could well be the, the the next step. You know, this could this could advance the horror film. And what what it did instead was it sort of advanced Wes Craven, and it advanced Nightmare on Elm Street, and it advanced um, Robert England. But it did it. It had, you know, the Nightmare films had a few copyists, and we can talk about those later on, but. Uh, but yeah, it didn't sort of change the game in the way that I think fans hoped it might do. It didn't push horror in a whole new direction. And um, a lot of people blame that on Nightmare 2, which is probably unfair looking back on it. And I, I, I think the film's reputation, as Adam said earlier, is growing and growing with, with, the, with the passing years. And, and deservedly so, maybe. I, I think it's a better film than, than it looked when it came out. Well, for good or ill, we ended up getting Wes Craven back for number three. And Wes, not been one to actually want to come back. It always surprises me that he directed the four screen films. 
because he's not known for coming back to his stuff generally or, or if he has it's always been like I didn't really want to come back but I did it you know uh, and he comes back here providing the story and the screenplay alongside three other writers yeah I mean does does that suggest that on part three he'd he'd reacted badly to part two and thought look look what they've done to my movie I've, I've got to save this I suppose if you're carrying an idea for years and years and you finally get it over the line, then a few months later, they knock this one out and go, oh, this will do, we've got a sequel now. You would be a bit hurt if it doesn't live up to what you've got on your head. I, for me, I, I don't read it as that. <clears throat> I think that's, that's, that's generally the accepted uh, wisdom of it. But he doesn't direct it. He comes up with a story, and then it's like there's like four other screen, three other screenwriters on it. It feels like he's come up with a story done a pass on a screenplay and then does gone, yeah, Bob, yeah, Bob, off you go. Uh, I, I, I owe you nothing now. You know, it feels like it's more of a Bob Shea, we need to bring Wes back to legitimise us in the eyes of fans again. Yeah, his, his name in the credits. Exactly. Yeah, whether, whether he works on the film or not. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So uh, that, that's how it feels like for me because, yeah, I don't know. I mean, it doesn't feel like a Wes Craven. Film. Yeah, yeah. Well, what we do get is Chuck Russell directing, who then went on to do the the Blob remake yeah. and a couple of years later, and and, and made a made a, a a really good job of that. And um, early work from uh, Frank Darabont. As yeah, well. Frank Darabont, you know, director of the the, the <laughs> arguably the greatest film of all time, depending on which IMDb user That's profile you say. mean. Yes, yeah. yeah um, the Shawshank Redemption. Um, but as we know, Frank Darabont cut his teeth doing schlocky horror movie for a screenplay, isn't it? Um, and here he is doing doing this one. And it's, yeah, it's regarded as arguably one of the best of the franchise. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we, we bring we bring Heather Langenkamp back. We bring yeah. John Saxon back again. Craig Wasson's the, the, the male lead in this, from uh, who, who we love from uh, De Palma's Body Double. Mm-hmm. And uh, interestingly, looks looks not unlike Robert England, I think. Uh, I, I wonder if he was cast because of that to to do a sort of you know other side of the coin sort of thing. Yeah, with the greatest respect to the cast of Nightmare on Elm Street two, um, it does seem to up the ante with the casting on this movie. You've got Patricia Arquette in the lead uh, yeah, female yeah. role, the new the new final girl kind of character. You've got uh, Lawrence Fishburne in it as well. You know, you get people who actual these are actual. These, these these people will go on to play a significant role in cinema in yeah, the next yeah. 15, 20 Again, years. Again, you, you can see why the likes of Brad Pitt were, were trying to get a, a, a foot in the door, mm. can't you? The, the generation that sensed that they were the, the new breed in Hollywood. Um, and, of course, this is a time when you, you've got the Brat Pack as well. You've got your Tom Cruise and your Rob Lowe's and people. And it's like the people underneath them that are coming through, that are looking for a foothold into Hollywood, that are all very confident and thinking that, yeah, we, we are going to make it. We're going to be the, the big generation in the late 80s and early 90s, move over Tom Cruise, you know. And they're all going for parts in the nightmare films, and some of them are getting them, mm. and they're, they're proving themselves in these films. They're doing a damn good job. Yeah. So, so the basic premise of this is, is, is a new generation of, of Elm Street kids, uh, are being terrorised by Freddy and they're all in an insane asylum uh, refusing to sleep, basically. That's that's the setup, And we get a, a, a series of ever-extravagant 
dream sequence deaths in this movie, um, along with wonderful quips from Freddy, um, uh, a la Arnie in, in his movies. He starts to become that quipping killer. Yeah, this 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 is now a thing in the eighties. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Going back, to, I always think this is this is peak nightmare. And I think this is why it's a fan favorite. I think whenever people made a list of like, what is a nightmare on Elm Street? Who is Freddy Krueger? This is going to take most of those boxes. You've got the elaborate set pieces. You've got the it's it's a, the best blend of comedy and horror before it tips too far into being a bit silly. It's got the quips. It's got the visual effects. It's got the great cast. It's the most eighties, if you want to call it that. Um, fashion wise when a lot of the slashes get talked up from that era it feels it feels peak 80s as well we got that one as well obviously which by default makes it kind of mm. the best and yeah just going back to that I think this is the one that people think of when they think they think Nightmare they think Freddy so I think all of those things are really important to why this has had such a lasting impact on the fandom and audiences why a lot of people prefer this one I, I agree. I agree. As as we've said, I was watching these films at the cinema as they came out, and part three looked like a, a cinematic movie. It, it looked big. It, it looked bold. You know, whereas the the first two, you could have happily sort of sat at home watching those on VHS. This needed to be seen in the cinema, I think, and uh, it's it's a big proper film, and it's it's got the scope of a proper movie. It's got ambition. It's got those big set pieces, and and yeah, the imagination goes wild. I, I love the idea in this one. Adam sort of dismissed this a little bit as oh, it's a bunch of kids in an asylum, <laughs> but it's what they, it's what they do. It's the fact that they team up mm. and they decide that they can fight Freddy and. Uh, you do get the sense, going back to those news reports about those Vietnamese refugees, you do get the sense that there's this sort of bonding together here of, of, of this group of people who all recognise that this thing is happening to them. They know because of talking to each other that they're not isolated, they're not alone. It's not a problem that they're suffering in, in isolation. There are people around that can help them. They can all help each other. It's got that great sort of community feel to it. And of course, what you've got is the authorities, the people running the the, the, the hospital who don't believe a word of it and, and dismiss what they say. But they've got each other. And I think that's a really positive thing in this film. And then Heather Langenkamp comes along as a sort of counsellor figure who's working with them. And because she's been through all this and because we know she's been through it all, we've seen her experience. We believe that. We, we buy that. And, and she realises that she can help these kids to help themselves. And I think the, the idea that if Freddie can do stuff in dreams, so can I, is fantastic. I, I, I think that's a brilliant, brilliant way for the series to move and 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 it's sort of carried on through the rest of the sequels you know people facing freddy people now facing freddy in dreams know that okay he's powerful he's a killer he can do me harm but what can i do yeah i mean yeah that that wasn't prevalent in the in the first two movies at all really the idea that you had agency in those dream sequences it was was... and and i think i think that's good i think it's Mm. good that across the franchise characters learn that and by part three they're they're finally doing something about it i think one of the the interesting things about the setting and the characters is, is that it's not just a bunch of your mates at school it's people from various different backgrounds with various different issues creating a very diverse group of people 
in that yeah, asylum. But, and they're all connected. But they're all connected. This one, this one weird. That's thing. right. Yeah. yeah so yeah. it makes the characters a bit more interesting. It's not just jock number two, um, you know, nerd number three. You know, it's like that. The, uh, as these things, what I say in high schools or, or holiday camps tend to be, this feels yeah, much more. It's, 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 it's like it's, it's more like a John Hughes um, bunch of yeah, kids. Absolutely, isn't it? absolutely. Yeah. They've got real lives and rounded personalities, and they're all different. <laughs> Yeah, and, and, and a bunch of great deaths in this movie. Yeah, um, we, we've got Heather, of course, with the... Um, she, she's now got what what my generation, I don't know about you guys, my generation would call this a Malin streak or a Dickie Davis <laughs> in her hair, you know. Or I suppose now, you you, you know, from, from recent TV, you could say she's she's doing a Stephen Toast, you know. I, I suppose to show, to show that she's been through the mill, she's fought Freddie and come out the other side. She's got a grey streak in her yeah, hair, you I mean, know. This movie the, was made... It's, it's great cinema short. This movie was made about two, three years after the first one. <laughs> so it's like, you know, she's not aged that much. She's like... <laughs> so, yeah, so so to show that, that she's been there and done it, you know, they give her grey hair, but not too much. They don't want to put the... on. She's still got to look glamorous and cool in front of the audience. But yeah, she's got to look like she's weather beaten and she's been through the Freddie Mill, you know. So we get we get an interesting dichotomy on this movie as well. You you have music by Angelo Badalamenti. His first film he did after Blue Velvet. He does Nightmare on Elm Street Part Three. But then, as a, as a contrast to the genius of Angelo Badalamenti, you also get a theme tune by Dokken, uh, of oh, Dream yes. Warriors, heavy metal. Um, do not undersell. <laughs> they can't be undersold. You can't see us at home, but we're all head banging at this very <laughs> moment. So. <laughs> yeah, you you get the, you start to get those cash in uh, tie-ins on this movie. We get Doc and doing the theme tune, Dream Warriors. Then obviously that will later lead to the Fat Boys um, uh, in a later Freddy movie. And the Fred, the Freddy rap. Freddy rap yeah. Yes. So, um, in some ways, it's a good movie, and it launches things. In other words, we, we, in other ways, it's terrible because we got the fat boys out of, because of this. Yeah, yeah. I mean, let's talk about the set pieces though, because they're they're mm. what people remember from this film, and uh, we we must all have a favourite, I'm sure. I think. Well, I think the one that stands out for me is the is the television one. Um, is is the, the TV yeah, one? Yeah. You know, uh, Freddy basically becoming tv and uh, smashing the girl's head into the into the tv screen um, what's extraordinary about that is the aftermath of it the fact that the the um the the hospital staff and 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 the the sort of officials there the head doctors and so on come in and they can't explain this death away and yet they they do you know they they just dismiss it oh it's another suicide what someone three feet off the ground with their head <laughs> stuck inside a television set? Oh no, it's it, she's she's killed herself, you know. But but uh, we know, and the kids in the film know that. Oh, we're we're not buying that, you know. Authority is is talking crap here, you know. We're we're not listening to these figures. Yeah, no. and and I I I, I love that about that kill that that you know you get this this absurd image. And the powers that be say normal. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it, when you put it like that, Daryl, it's ridiculous. Um, <laughs> I can't but it's great because of that, because the, the kids can have suddenly got something to react against them. 
they're fighting Freddy, but they're also fighting the people inside the institution. I mean, we do get we do get in this movie. There's less of the sort of like you don't know what's real and what's not. There's definitely an idea of oh, well, this is real, this isn't real. Yeah, but they take control yeah, yeah, yeah. of that. You know, that it's there because they're controlling it now. They decide when they want to dream and when they don't. You know, and I think that's what's great about this. My, my favorite one, um, the memorable one, is always when he walks out onto the ledge and it's like puppeteer free. Oh yeah, yeah. Because again, going back to what having to watch these in the cinema, that must have been fantastic. Just the, the skies and the scope of them, and it's kind of Freddy overpowering the scene. Yeah, yeah. Don't, kind of... don't you don't you find the makeup job in that really squirm inducing? I think the shot, the, the shot, the shot of the feet with the veins coming yeah. out of it is brilliant. Absolutely. I was just going to say, as much as kind of gore and violence films doesn't really bother me. Anything what looks quite accurate, anything very medical, really does, and everything aches a bit when that pops up. But it's yeah, and and it's a it's a well acted scene too, not just by by England, but by the 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 the, the, the guy who, in yeah. the character. You know, he he sells it to you. He sells his pain to you. I think, and then of course, then of course, sort of three quarters of the way through, we get the the Ray Harryhausen homage. Which comes comes is a bit unexpected, but it's fabulous. You know, we we get we get a fighting skeleton, and it's Freddy. Yeah, yeah. So it's Freddy's bones come back to life. So uh, John Saxon and Craig Watson fighting Freddy's skeleton in a junkyard. Fantastic. I, I also I also like the jugs the jugs death with the with the needles going into the arms for Taron yeah. G- Jennifer Rubin's character. I thought that was a good. Death yeah, that's Jennifer Rubin who 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 went on to get her own sort of fry, uh, Freddy ripoff, didn't she? In uh, Bad Dreams a couple of years yeah. later. Uh, not a great film, but good, good, sort of nice, nice that she got a vehicle out of this. So, and I, I can say at this point, I'm, I'm, I'm going to boast here and say I've been in the back of a car with Heather Langenkamp, and I've been in the back of a separate car with Jennifer Rubin. Wow. So, uh, <laughs> I don't, I don't, I don't really know how to respond to that, Daryl. Um, were you in the boots? So was that we are? Well, <laughs> I'm, I'm saying no more. <laughs> Was was this a dream, Daryl? <laughs> I, I I don't even know the answer to that myself, Adam. And with the image of Daryl Buxton wedged into a boot of a car while Hollywood celebrities are whisked to their next destination, we will pause there. We will be back next week to look at Nightmare on Elm Streets four through six, Wes Craven's return to the franchise in Wes Craven's New Nightmare. Freddy vs. Jason and the 2010 reboot. See you next week.